Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Following the declarations of secession in 1860 and 61, the Confederate States improvised an army that resisted the United States for four years. But all an army needs is people, horses, rifles, some wagons, really, except for artillery, everything it needed was ready to hand. The Confederate Navy, on the other hand, had to be improvised from almost nothing. Who did this? What was it like to serve in the Confederate Navy? And what did they accomplish? We'll put those questions and others to Dr. Barbara Tomlin, author of Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, although I've been there this week. Uh, we're still teaching remotely, doing everything remotely here in May of 2021, but I'm still employed by ECU and not speaking for ECU tonight, nor do I ever speak for them, nor do they speak for me, nor will my guest speak for anyone but herself, as we always do here at the show. Uh, I would be happy to speak for the ECU baseball team this past weekend. They had a great weekend, took three out of four games from Tulane, a nationally ranked team. It was a, 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 a or at least the top of the, the conference team. We had a, a great back and forth series and everything that makes college baseball fun, uh, except big crowds still can't get people into the stadium waiting for the pandemic to subside. Hopefully that won't be too long. Um, 
in less fun campus news, hoping something will subside, is the latest uh, craze that the administration has come up with, a committee to figure out how to keep making uh, revenue match uh, the outflows at the university and the various uh, committees have come up with academic plans that all involve conforming everything to the state's funding formula. So if, if they could take it to the extreme, they would get rid of every discipline on campus except the one that got the highest uh, funding percentage from the state. I, I don't know, business or biology, I'm not sure who it would be. But we would just, we would just have one class if, if they could if we followed their plans. It's sort of like the program prioritization committee nightmare of 2008 after the, the great crash, 2009. You can go back to listen to old shows and hear me kvetch about that endlessly, uh, so I won't say any more about it today. Hopefully this version of it will just go away over the summer. Uh, more interestingly, and more related to Civil War Talk Radio on campus, our Board of Trustees met a couple weeks ago. I mentioned to you that there was a discussion of changing some building names on campus. Some of the people buildings were named for in the early 20th century had rather dramatic records of public white supremacy uh, advocacy. So the Board of Trustees, uh, when this was proposed to them by the interim chancellor last time they met, they, they punted. They said, well, come back and give us some standards by which to decide. They already had standards written, but there was a way to delay. So they formed another committee. I was on that. We came up with some standards, gave them to them. But at their most recent meeting a couple weeks ago, uh, rather than decide, they got a presentation from the new chancellor who has replaced the interim chancellor. Uh, his name is Philip Rogers. He used to be chief of staff here. And uh, the new chancellor gave a talk that I, I think certainly put an end to the board's desire to have the problem go away. Uh, some, some board members had literally said, can't you just give us enough information so we can make a decision about building names and never have to consider the issue again? Uh, can't you just make the wheels of history stop turning? Can't you just make this issue not happen? Um, well, needless to say, we can't. And the new chancellor gave a talk in which he acknowledged that and recognized that it's not an ECU issue. It's it's a, a social issue affecting the whole country, every campus, and indeed the whole country. And we need to do something more than just name or rename a few buildings, but think more deeply about how ECU can be a... Uh, diverse and inclusive institution that lives up to the ideals of American society. So it was, a, it was a very good talk, and it put the temporary discussion of building names on hold in favor of a larger discussion, uh, and, and uh, the board just had no reply to that. They, they could hardly argue back. So we'll see. One more local detail. I've told you in the past about Heritage Hall, which was connected to a building name decision of, of 2015, the idea of building a, a museum on campus, and some of you graciously contributed to that effort. We have since built a very good website called Heritage Hall. You can find it on ECU's website of university history. But last at this last board meeting, it was announced there's a physical location now, which is great news. 
Uh, I found out what it was. It's the building that used to be the chancellor's residence. Uh, now it's not being used for anything, which it's in a good location. The two drawbacks are that they consulted nobody with museum or public history knowledge in making the selection, which isn't terrible. I, had I been on the committee, I don't think I would have objected to it. Uh, but I found out in a recent uh, conversation with the current chief of staff that they plan to put the museum exhibits in there. Oh, and by the way, we still plan to keep having receptions. They're small ones, you know, 50 people. Uh, keep the kitchen, commercial kitchen and, and reception facility open. Well, I, I can tell you, having been in that building, there is no conceivable way you can keep a commercial kitchen and host receptions and have a first-class uh, museum setting of any size. So there's going to be a lot of education needing to be done. The, the, the bulk of the world thinks museums consist of exhibits and somebody with a feather duster who dusts them off periodically. Sort of like imagining a restaurant consists of nothing but the dining area and the food magically appears from, from nowhere. Um, there's a lot behind the scenes at museums, and uh, uh, we're going to need that if we're going to have one on campus. So that'll be interesting to see as it goes forward. I'll keep you posted on that. Also keep you posted on our shows coming up next week. Mark Bielski returns to the show with his new book, A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans. Uh, Jim Oakes, who was to have been here a couple weeks ago, will be back for sure on the 26th of May uh, to talk about Abraham Lincoln and the anti-slavery constitution. On June 2nd, Edward Longacre, who I've been hoping to have on the show for a long time, will finally join us. He has a new book on... Uh, General David Gregg, the unsung hero of Gettysburg, he calls him. We'll get a couple return visits to close out the season. June 9th, Kent Masterson Brown has a book that's not even out yet about Meade at Gettysburg. Very much look forward to reading that. And finally, Larry Daniel uh, will discuss The Army of the Tennessee, his book Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee, not the Army of the Tennessee, the Army of Tennessee, uh, the Confederate version, why the Army of Tennessee failed. So lots coming up. Go to www.impedimentsofwar.org to find out who's on next. Mark Gaffney keeps the site up to date, keeps the Facebook page up to date. And while you're there, click on the PayPal button, and you can donate to Civil War Talk Radio. I use the funds to buy the books you hear about on the show, or if I've already got the book or I've been sent a copy of the book, I put the money in a jar a virtual jar, not a physical jar, but I use it to buy whatever whatever strikes my fancy because it's not a 501c3, it's not tax deductible. Uh, your gifts are just gifts. You don't have, you don't get to declare them. I don't declare them. Uh, d don't exceed 15,000 in gifts in one year. I think that's the IRS limit, but none of you have come close to that, so we're okay there. Uh, tonight, we are talking about Life in Jefferson Davis' Navy, uh, a relatively new book, 2019. The author is Dr. Dr. Barbara Tomlin. Uh, Dr. Tomlin, are you there? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. So uh, let me start by asking how you're feeling. You, you, we've been corresponding, and I understand you had uh, knee surgery not long ago. Uh, how, I how's did. it doing? It's doing what it usually does. <laughs> 
Yeah, this was a total knee replacement, um, which my doctor at Ventura Orthopedics now calls resurfacing. Hmm. And someone who has something similar done said when they saw the x-ray, it looked like they had gone into your knee, and now you have a bunch of Legos that are all kind of locked together and different. <laughs> I don't know what mine's going to look like, but it's swollen right now. Um, well, I, and, you know, they have pain meds, and I have a walker, and I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's something that needed to be done, and I was anxious to have it done earlier, but because of the pandemic, especially here in Ventura County, I wasn't about to take up a hospital bed in January. So we put it off until now when more people are vaccinated, and and um, I'm glad to have it over. I'll just be happy when it, you know, a few weeks go by and I have a perfectly new knee right now. It's there. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, book. The usual. I say most of the people I talk to say uh, say they feel great after you know when the knee's working again. It's a great yeah. improvement in in, in uh, yeah. quality of life. So so I hope you have That's that. That's what I hear. I hear that. And um, uh, the nurse came this morning and to check things over. And then the physical therapy guy. I'm going to have. I was going to do outpatient physical therapy, which I've had before. Mm-hmm. but not after knee surgery like this, so they're going to do it at home, which will be helpful. Getting in and out of a car can be a challenge, <laughs> even I if you're not imagine. <laughs> But it gives me <laughs> lots of time to work on my next book and take naps, and, you know, you have to do anything. <laughs> so, well, that, that's, that, I appreciate you being a real trooper to be on the show uh, it, while you're recovering. Now, you, I, I looked at your biography. You have a doctorate in history, and you, you've published with uh, the uh, uh, U.S. Naval Institute Press, which is a, uh, an academic-level press. But yes. uh, I don't see any evidence, that, but you didn't practice uh, or, or teach at university. Is that correct? No, I did. I did teach. Um, I got a PhD oh, okay. in American history um, in 1988 from the uh, Rutgers, the State University, Rikers. Mm-hmm. And I taught on their main campus um, as a, they, you're called a lecturer. I was mm-hmm. never a full faculty member. I was a lecturer, and I, I taught see. a course um, for many years, a two-semester course called War, Peace, in the American Military. So it was a military and naval history. Um, we start, you know, right in the, well, with the pilgrims almost, <laughs> And mm-hmm. when I usually tried to get up through the Vietnam War. One semester, I did get through the first Persian Gulf War. Um, if I had to teach it now, I think we'd have to make it three semesters. <laughs> but um, it was a great, it was a lecture course. Um, a lot of, I always had at least 90 or 100 kids. It was required at Rutgers uh, that they have a course taught by a civilian um, hmm. in a military history for the ROTC students. But I had a lot more of just regular uh, mm-hmm. Kids that you know were coming there, and uh, it was a great, it was great fun. The last year or two, I did have, I wasn't doing the lecture course. I was doing a special topics where they would read papers and present papers. It was more like a seminar because they wanted more. They wanted more. <laughs> they said, "Well, we've had the basic course. Where's the rest?" Yeah. Um, so that was really that was fun. It was great to be at Rutgers, and I didn't. I didn't have to worry about getting tenure because I wasn't a tenure track mm-hmm. you know, level professor. I got to just teach and and have fun. And then we moved to California um, about 20 years ago. Uh, and I haven't been teaching here uh, for reasons I'm not sure about. <laughs> um, hmm. But um, anyway, um, 
I've been writing cool. books, so the good thing about when you're not teaching is you have a lot more time to write. So um, I could well imagine that. Yeah, that, it uh, takes you know it takes a lot of time to do the research, and especially the research and the writing. So it was great to be able to, and this was uh, Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy was a New U.S. Naval Institute press book. Mm-hmm. And mainly that was because I, my other four books were published by the University of Kentucky Press. And this one um, was the Naval Institute because the person who talked me into this was uh, Dennis Ringel, who wrote Life in Mr. Lincoln's Navy. Oh. And he came up to me one time at the Naval, uh, we always have a Naval History Symposium every other year in Annapolis. And he came up and he said, you know, Barbara, you should really write about the Confederate Navy. And I said, well, why aren't you doing it? And he said, because there aren't enough letters and diaries. <laughs> hmm. But you should do it. <laughs> and it turns out he was right. Um, there was a lot easier to write about the Union Navy. There were, there's a lot more information from sailors, fewer from, from the Confederate side. Um, but I was not real happy about doing it because I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in a family that, I wouldn't say we were abolitionists, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to write about the Confederacy. I'm sorry. And uh, I walked to the end of Alumni Hall and thought, well, why not? <laughs> you know, why not? I mean, they were sailors. Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to write a book about the other side. You know, I've written two World War II books, but I've never written a book about the German side or the Italian mm-hmm. side. Um, so I had to kind of learn a bit more about the Confederacy and... uh you know, these guys, were uh, they were sailors. They were officers. Most of them, many, over 200, when the war started, uh, resigned from the U.S. Navy and went south. Um, and then on both sides, there was a manpower issue. So you had foreign sailors, both for the Union Navy and the Confederate Navy. Um, and um, so, I'm not sure sometimes that some of the Confederate sailors that were fighting for the Confederate Navy really knew much about what they were fighting for. <laughs> You know, it wasn't that they were fighting for the South or for states' rights or anything. They were just, mm-hmm. it was a job. Um, I, I and, picture uh, that being more the case with, with the Navy than, than the Army even. We're going to yeah. take a short break and come back okay. in, in just a minute or so uh, and talk more about Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. That's the title of the book we're discussing tonight with the author, uh, Dr. Barbara Tomlin. Uh, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. 
Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Barbara Tomlin, author of Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. Uh, we started talking uh, just at the end of the first segment about where the sailors came from who filled this Navy. Barbara, before we pick up, picking up that topic, let me ask a maybe mm-hmm. trivial question uh, about the title. The title is Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. It's D-A-V-I-S apostrophe. And yeah. some pedants will have it uh, be when a name ends in S to be a phosphory S. Did you yeah. have any input into the title? Uh, was that an issue with your editor? Uh, I don't know about the apostrophe, but I... Yes, the apostrophe question. Yeah. Oh, the apostrophe question. Yeah, I can't I, remember I'm just how we about talked that. about that. Um, I think probably one of the the uh, copy editors decided that's the way it should be. Um, Jefferson uh, Davis, of course, was the um, uh, president of the Confederacy, and um, I wanted it to match Dennis's book. His was Life in Mr. Lincoln's Navy, so right. I couldn't figure out how to say Life in Mr. Davis's Navy because people would say, "Well, who's that?" Yeah, I I I couldn't think of a better title. I kept thinking, "Well, I wanted it to match." match so that, you know, you had both sides. Now, I don't know whether the Mm -hmm. Naval Institute, my suggestion to them, which they maybe never did, was in the bookstore there in Annapolis and all these some other bookstores, put them both together. You know, here you've got both sides of the war, the Navy side, both of them together. Um, So that's sort of what, you know, we came up with. I don't know whether they've actually put them together or not, but, you know, a box set, I don't know about that. (laughs) But um, You mentioned that the... the, uh Many of the sailors were were foreigners. Uh, I was interested to read that the Navy also supplied itself with crew members from prizes that were taken. Uh, Yes, indeed, yes. That was something, particularly the Raiders, uh, the Confederate Mm -hmm. Raiders, uh, the Shenandoah, the Alabama, Florida, um, and the Sumter. Um, When they took a prize, um, they either had to put them ashore or do something with them. They couldn't hold them on board for very long. And so they said, because they needed men, do you want a job? <laughs> and many of them did, particularly, um, I think it was the Shenandoah that w- went out into the whaling industry in the Pacific. And mm-hmm. a lot of the whalers um, joined the Confederate States Navy on, on board that particular ship and were happy to do so because they said, wow, you know, you're paying, you're paying us a lot better and the food is a lot better than what we're getting on these whaling vessels. Um, it was a much better deal. Um, I think some of the early raiders, particularly in um, when they had, because several of them had been built in, in British shipyards, um, 
some of them, they, they did the usual. Uh, if it wasn't a press gang, they went through the bars and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and got, got whoever they could that was willing to, to join up. Um, they also recruited um, heavily. Uh, there's a lot of posters. Um, I think I have one in a picture in the book. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember now. Um, it's right in front of me. Um, that they were advertising for, for sailors and for Marines because uh, there was a Confederate Marine Corps. And sometimes they were promising, you know, if you sign up, you get X number of, of dollars, um, and uh, this is a good deal for you. <laughs> the other thing that I was surprised about was that at some point toward the end of the war, they got kind of desperate for men, and they were going to prison camps and saying, uh, we will let you out. <laughs> um, mm. If you join the Confederate Navy, um, we will spring you out of prison. Um, and that seemed to be a kind of a... You know, the prison camps were at real great places, so um, no. they were willing to do that. You had to uh, change sides sometimes to do that um, or take the uh, oath of uh, allegiance. The other thing that they did that didn't work very well, particularly with officers, was to say, if you take the oath of allegiance to the United States and you're a prisoner, um, they called it swallowing the eagle, and most of them said they wouldn't do it. I have a little bit about the prison camp at uh, Johnson's Island, the, uh, the Union prison camp for the Confederates, and they said, we're not going to do that. We're not changing sides. <laughs> We'd rather stay in prison. Um, now, one of the other expedients that I was surprised to read about uh, in, involved African-American sailors, and, and you know, we know there's a political controversy about the mythical African-American soldiers uh, in Lee's army, but you report there were actually actually were African American sailors in the Confederate Navy, given how desperate they were for, for people with, with yeah. nautical experience. Can you talk yeah, about a that? Yeah, a few. Um, there were a few. There weren't a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I always it, I mean, thought it, it was it, interesting. It, yeah, sorry. No, I would say it, um, it's it's because it's so so heavily politicized uh, that. It's sort of interesting to read that uh, you give some examples. Uh, you, you cite, for example, pilots, coastal pilots. Oh, uh, yes, yes. You know, had to be experienced and trained, and their knowledge was rare and valuable. And uh, the Confederacy was will, willing to overlook race. Uh, well, they certainly were instance. there. Most of their pilots were, were, well, many of their, if not most. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never been able to find out, other than a couple that we know about, like Robert Smalls, Right. Um, anything more about them, but at the National Archives, when I was doing research years ago, there is a book that lists a great big heavy book, hand you know done, with all of the pilots that the um, that the Navy used, but it doesn't say anything more about them than that. I mean, it you know it didn't tell me anything more, which is too bad. I think I think the the story of pilots period in the war is something that probably hasn't been done a lot about. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a lack of of research, too. Um, But it's interesting that, um, and I wrote, one of the other books, of course, that I wrote that I think is, I think, my finest work (laughs) and most interesting Uh is The Blue Jackets and Contrabands, which is about African-Americans who either served in the Union Navy or were supporting the Union war effort. Um, so when you read that and you know all the many different things that they did, then you look at the Confederacy and it's really not that similar. Um, they were not using uh, contrabands the way at all, the way the Union Navy did. Um, 
Well, you but, mentioned but manpower. Manpower was an issue on both sides. They really had a lot of trouble. <laughs> No, I mean, you mentioned Robert Smalls as an example, the famous yes, you know, African-American pilot who uh, yeah. uses his opportunity to, to take a Confederate yeah. warship out to the Union blockading fleet. Um, yeah. And, and I just meant, I mentioned this not to, to imply that there's any substantial black participation in the Confederate Navy, willing or otherwise, but just uh, people who want to make hay out of that issue – uh, don't even know where to look. Apparently, um, <laughs> the, 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 you mentioned offhand uh, a moment ago the Confederate Marine Corps. Uh, that was how, how large was that institution? Was that a substantial part of the Confederate naval war effort? I can't remember whether it was a thousand. The Confederate Navy was very small compared to uh, to uh, to the Union Navy. That's the other thing, which of course is the other reason there aren't as many <laughs> aren't as many. Uh, um, sources about the mm-hmm. Confederate Navy. Um, I can't. I don't remember the exact number, but uh, the interesting thing I thought about the Confederate uh, Marine Corps is, of course, they needed to have um, Marines on board often just to make sure that if there's a mutiny, there's something to put <laughs> someone on board ships yes. to put it put it down. Um, and I'm just trying to think. Uh, let me look. Um, I, they were the ones that they offered bounties for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, look in the book and see if I have an actual number of officers. There is a book about the Confederate and, uh, Marine Corps, and uh, but we're talking a ballpark, uh, you know, a thousand uh, Marines. Yeah, so it's not, it's, it's not a major. Uh, uh, no, piece it's not. Of the war um, they had 1861. Me... They had only okay. 63 officers, <laughs> mm-hmm. and. Um, at some point, oh, here it is, yeah. At some point, um, they, they uh, Mallory, uh, Secretary Mallory, said you, we can add to the number. They increased the size um, so they would have, um, in terms of non-commissioned, 40 sergeants, 40 corporals, 840 privates, 10 drummers, 10 fifes, and two musicians. <laughs> um, and that, that table of organization remained in for the rest of the war. So if you add in the officers... Yeah, it's barely a thousand. Um, okay, it, it's it's but, not even. Uh, a but, but they had it, and it went. And the and the and the <laughs> other thing that I think I found um, it wasn't a total surprise, but when I started looking at it at the Confederate Navy, it it is a very um, uh, a mirror really uh, of the Union Navy. It was very similarly organized. Mm-hmm. Um, the rank the ranks were the same. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of the life. You know, you're in the Confederate Navy, and the uniform may be different, <laughs> but a lot of uh, of your life is going to be the same, except for the grog ration. Oh. The Union Navy got rid of the grog ration in, uh, uh, eight, in September 1862. The Confederates kept it up to the very, uh, almost the very end of the war, when at some point, I remember, um, they were running, the blockade was working, and it tightened enough that they were running out of whiskey <laughs> so, and rum. Um, but uh, they never gave that one up, um, although the Union, uh, of course, did too. But um, I think it's interesting, too, when you look at when the organization of the Confederate Navy, um, they, you know, they had the Office, and, Office of Medicine and Surgery. Um, as I said, the Confederate sailors slept in hammocks. They holy stoned the neck, they polished the decks. They polished bright work. They drilled uh, with the guns and small arms. They cold shipped. 
and they enjoyed uh, a lot of the same things that Union sailors did, dancing, fiddling, liberty, having pets. Um, they did write some letters. I wish that we had more of them. They talked about uh, elections, and uh, they read newspapers. They were, you know, pretty much the same as, as Union sailors. It was very similar, and I think that's because their officers, as I said, the officers in the Confederate Navy had been officers um, in the uh, Union Navy. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, um, I was rereading my notes and thought, you know, I'd forgotten this. The midshipmen at the time of the, the beginning of the war, um, at the midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy, 44% of them were from the South. Nice. And evidently, um, many of them resigned as midshipmen at the Naval Academy. And if they didn't want to resign, evidently their fathers wrote the Navy Department and said, my son's resigning. <laughs> and I kind of wondered, do you think he asked the son first or he just wrote and said, my son's going south? Too bad. Wow. <laughs> um, so suddenly you've got midshipmen, that, and there have been a couple examples of fellows who are midshipmen in the U.S. Navy that now become midshipmen and eventually uh, ensigns or whatever um, in uh, the Confederate Navy. They kind of switched sides, but they were still in the Navy. Um, and some of them did write memoirs, which I think are really, really interesting, I think. Um, We're talking so. about the Confederate Navy, and mm-hmm. one thing that you, you mentioned near the start of the book that I was curious about was the uh, the provisional Navy, as opposed to the Confederate regular Navy. Yeah, they had were, this thing with the provisional Navy. <laughs> what was that? I've never been quite figured out how they, why they did it or how they did it. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, yeah, it, it seemed I guess mysterious. it was that maybe when the war was over, they wouldn't have to keep the, the officers, you know, if they didn't. I guess if they won the war, they were, mm-hmm. they'd have to reduce the size of the Navy, and they thought, well, if this is provisional, they wouldn't have to do it. Um, it was an odd, an odd sort of thing. Um, and, to be, and to be a provisional officer where you really, you're commissioned, but you're not really commissioned. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, I mean, that was this whole act of, you know, the act of organization in 1861. So, um, yeah, an odd sort of thing. I, I think, really, I've never, I didn't spend a lot of time working on about that because I thought it was a little weird. Um, <laughs> Um, it, it struck me that way. I, I was yeah, it, struck, it still strikes me. Um, it said that one of the things that they did um, with the Revisional Navy, the new law allowed Mallory to promote younger, more energetic officers. Because I guess, you know, the officers that went south that were older and had been in the U.S. Navy for a long time, you know, they went to Washington. Well, first they went to Montgomery, Alabama, and then they went to uh, Richmond and uh, said, we want a job. <laughs> well, they didn't have enough ships to put these guys in, particularly if they were more senior officers. And they were old. A lot of them, it right. took a long time in the pre-war U.S. Navy, before the Civil War, to get you know up the ranks, to get to the point where you're a captain or even a commander. And by then you could be, some of them were really old. <laughs> and I think that it was Secretary Mallory was right about that. If we have a provisional Navy, then we can get a bunch of younger guys that are a lot more energetic and give them kind of, it's almost like a temporary commission. Um, and I guess it worked. Um, they got rid of a lot of the really older ones. And I, I was just reading, a, we had some problems in the Union Navy too. I've been reading a, mm-hmm. a, a book manuscript about a, a sailor in the Union Navy, Henry Wells. 
and he had a very poor opinion of Goldsboro, um, <laughs> Commodore Goldsboro in the Union Navy, and that he was basically incompetent, really incompetent. I didn't, I didn't realize that to the extent that he was talking. So they do, they always have a problem. I think you know, with in every war too, with you have people who have been at the senior levels, and now you're in a war. Um, in World War II, I mean, you think about Spruance and Halsey and some of these people that came to the top, but at the time they were not. They were not up there. They were much more senior, older, older officers. Um, so, yeah, it was striking that, that the, yeah, I would yeah. say the the initial uh, plan you described for the Confederate Navy provided for I think four admirals at the top and then yeah. right. captains <laughs> and commanders and so on. It, uh, the the you know too many leaders and not enough followers syndrome. They they had yeah. four admirals, but but no ships to speak of. Um, they did, however, uh, as you you show in the book, they they improvised uh, you know a, a naval organization, and the sailors did largely echo those of the uh, the, the federal fleet. That was mm-hmm. certainly something that 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 I found myself. Observing as I was reading that uh, this does have echoes, and, and, and you've written about the uh, the U.S. fleet, and and there's not a lot of different difference. You mentioned the grog ration as one difference. Was there any other place where you saw a substantial difference in the, the um, sailors' lives? Well, and I, yeah, I, I, one of the things that struck me reading it about it is it, unless you were on a raider. Um, mm-hmm. Out at sea, you know, I have a whole chapter um, that that is about, you know, the um, there's naval combat along the coast, and then there's naval combat mm-hmm. at, at 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 sea, high high seas kind of thing. Um, those who were um, involved in blockading or trying to block the blockade or being there defending the coast, they had a some of them had a pretty nice life. <laughs> it was boring. But they're um, up some river in the south, and um, on occasion um, they're billeted um, in homes, or they um, the ones that were um, uh, along the James River, they would go into Richmond. You know, they'd go to the theater, or they'd have some guy said, well, he was a midshipman, he said, well, we went to Richmond, and we had dinner at the thus and such, and we had oysters, and then so-and-so came along and said, he was young, this kid, and he said, and asked me if I wanted a, 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 a glass of wine, and I said, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and others, um, they, they, one, one fellow that got himself kind of in trouble because he went ashore for a, a ball um, in one of these towns, it might have been New Bern, um, and got a little tipsy, and he came back on shore, and, or back on, on board, and there was some kind of an incident where they thought somebody might be boarding, and he was too out of it to realize that there was anybody there because he'd had too much fun at you know at this uh, this uh, fancy dress ball. Um, but they had, and and they also formed, which I thought was really interesting. They formed some of these people formed relationships with families in those towns. I can't remember which fellow it was, but he wrote about how he kept visiting this girl, <laughs> and mm-hmm. he eventually married her. <laughs> he was able well, to um, see enough of the family um, to, um, you know, kind of court her, and eventually married her. Um, 
Others were so, it, pretty much bored because they were ashore and they weren't. A lot of them just said, you know, this is really boring. We, we'd like to be at sea where we can be in some kind of combat. We're just sitting on this ship. It's hot. It's humid. Um, the food is not great. Um, and, you know, we're not, we're not really fighting anybody. Um, and I think that so. I think that whole frustration. A lot of the the few letters that are there, they talk, or journals, they talk about how, you know, this this is boring. There's nothing happening. <laughs> um, well, we're going to talk about that that what they were craving, which was combat for some of them. Uh, yeah. In our third segment, we'll take a short break now, come back, and talk more with our guest tonight, Barbara Tomlin. She's the author of Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, veterans. Are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Barbara Tomlin, author of Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. been talking about the uh, living conditions for Confederate sailors. Barbara, you were talking about the ones who, who essentially lived on shore. Uh, certainly from where I'm sitting here in Greenville, North Carolina, we're on the Tar River. That's one north of from the Noose River, where the CSS right. Noose was built in Kinston. Yeah. And then you describe how some of the folks lived uh, ashore there. It, it, it is amazing to me that they built ships like the Noose or the, the Albemarle built uh, up yeah, on the Roanoke River. That the, they're, they're way inland. I mean, from, from yeah. where I'm sitting, it, it, it's a 45, 50-minute drive in my Honda Civic to get to the beach. Uh, so to get one of these ironclads out to the ocean from Kinston would have taken – uh, a, a day. Uh, they're oh, they're yeah. built in these cornfields far inland. Remarkable <laughs> ingenuity. And you have a chapter about the, the experimentation and uh, yeah. uh, innovation in the Confederate Navy. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I thought that it was very interesting that um, that Mallory in particular was very interested in, in, in 
trying to be a little more innovative and coming up with um, some because you, you're you know you're a you're fighting a much larger navy. <laughs> you have to come up with something that's a little uh, more clever <laughs> and combative. Um, so they, of course, um, they came up with the use. Of, the most interesting thing to me, because I and I wrote a book about um, um, the Mississippi River, and it was true there too, as, as well as along the coast. Um, a fellow named Crowley was involved in the Confederate torpedo service, and of course, torpedoes were really mines. They called them torpedoes, but they were mines. And he talks about how they developed these electric mines. Uh, mines sank a lot of um, enemy ships for the Confederates um, because they were in the river and, you know, they either could detonate them from shore or they got to the point where if you ran over one, um, they caused a lot of damage. It, it's, mines are always interesting for the inferior Navy. It was true in World <laughs> War II, too. Um, but the, the other, of course, was the famous submersible, which really wasn't submersible, the Hunley, which sank the Housatonic. <laughs> Um, they came up with these spar torpedoes, uh, which were not mines, really. I mean, they were <laughs> on the end of a spar. Um, uh, the Davids, uh, the torpedo boat David, which um, actually exploded their torpedo against the new Ironsides, which was a, a Union Navy um, ironclad. Um, and the Squib, um, the Squib was a kind of a David-type ship, the little one, and it uh, damaged uh, but failed to sink um, the, uh, the Minnesota, which was the flagship. Union Navy flagship in that area. Um, and uh, I just think it's really interesting that they were willing to, to come up with, uh, Hunter Davidson was the head of the torpedo service, to come up with ideas uh, if you're, um, um, uh, you know, you're the underdog, <laughs> you have to come up with things that can do something to um, increase your chances of of success, and, and they, they did try. It wasn't overwhelmingly successful. Um, the raiders, of course, the Confederate Navy had 11 raiders, raiding ships. Mm-hmm. And um, I always have to look again at the numbers because it kind of surprises me. <laughs> um, there were 11 of them, and together they destroyed or captured 252 merchantmen or whalers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hit-and-run tactics at the beginning of the war were used by privateers um, to draw... Uh, Union blockaders away from the coast and try and dis- disrupt economic life uh, and induce war weariness. But it was the raiders that went really went out there and um, took prizes, a lot of them, and drove the insurance rates way up um, for uh, the Union um, to the point where a lot of them just stopped sending ships out. It, they couldn't afford to do it. Um, so that you know, the whole Union thing with the blockade, of course, was the big story of the war. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting to me that the Union, uh, the Confederacy, despite the Union trying to blockade, it's 3,000 miles of coast, um, they sent a lot of ships, um, particularly from Mobile into Cuba, to pick up medicine and other, especially medicines, but other supplies and took them back to Mobile. Um, so they could supply the Confederacy and, and got, a, got around the blockade um, better than you might you might think. Um, mm-hmm. The blockade was, there's been a lot of books and a lot of arguments, I think, about the blockade, but it did begin to tighten some toward the end of the war, but it was not, you know, the Union did not have a the kind of blockade tightening that they had hoped, I think, in the beginning. Um, but the other thing that is important, 
I think, for people to think about in the Civil War is that this was, a lot of people argue, the first modern American war mm-hmm. fought by steam-driven vessels and one in which, of course, ironclads played a big role. <laughs> Not just the Battle of Hampton Roads, but ironclads in general. And that they, the Confederate Navy had to establish naval stations, a naval foundry. Um, mm-hmm. They had to produce a heavy ordnance, which they did. Um, uh, the Brooks 7-inch rifle, the Naval Ironworks at Columbus, Georgia, for steam machinery. And they had to establish a naval academy. There's a lot of, a lot of what we know about life in Jefferson Davis, the Navy, comes out of the midshipmen at uh, the Naval Academy, which was on board a ship, an old ship called the Patrick Henry. Um, and they, maybe because they were young, I don't know, they kept the letters that they wrote home, they wrote journals. We know a lot about what life was for, you know, was like for them. Um, but to have to build ships or get them built abroad and then arm them and man them, when you're starting with, you're starting almost with nothing. I mean, really. Right. <laughs> it was, I think, re- yeah, fascinating to me that they, they really had to throw this thing together um, and, and did a pretty good job of it. Um, <laughs> I'm always uh, surprised about that. Um, yeah, I'm curious about your evaluation of, of the, the effort, uh, having read about their, their sailors. Could, could they have done more? Was this about all you could accomplish with the resources they had? That's a good point. I think the only thing they, that would have made a big difference um, is, of course, if, the, if they had, if they, if Antietam hadn't happened, and if they, mm-hmm. you know, kind of didn't do well there, the Confederacy, they were trying to convince uh, the British to come in and help them, to help the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And the British were thinking about it and couldn't figure out what to do. And they were waiting to see if the South could win. And then I think they would have helped, because then they would have had all the um, support and finances and machinery, whatever, guns and everything from, from, from the United Kingdom, but they didn't. Um, the other thing that um, I think that a lot of people that, you know, one of the, one of the questions that people have asked is, well, um, who, what, you know, what's the legacy and um, mm-hmm. what can we say about um, the ability of the leadership of the Navy. Mallory is, of course, was a senator from Florida. He chaired the Committee on Naval Affairs, so he wasn't, he knew what he was doing. And mm-hmm. James Bullock was the fellow who went uh, and had the Confederate ships built in foreign shipyards. And they were first rank, but a lot of what I've read suggests that President Jefferson Davis <laughs> and his mm-hmm. associates failed to really put in place um, effectively blockade runners and to pursue diplomacy to get the aid of European allies. And it's been said that, and I'm not an expert on Jefferson Davis, but that he was, in fact, a land-minded person. <laughs> he really was not, he, they claimed he didn't support his Navy aides, and he didn't really understand the significance of sea power for the South. So one of the things they could have done better, of course, is had a president that was a lot more uh, knowledgeable and more interested in, in, in the, the, you know, the vital role of, of sea power. Um, of course, the Naval Institute always loves to hear that, <laughs> but, but I guess it's true. Um, um, so I, in a way, and, and I think it, it kind of reminds me, too, about, um, I was telling my husband, we've been watching a show about the Civil War on, on great courses, and, and mm-hmm. Gary Gallagher is pointing out, wisely, that you, you have to have somebody who can mobilize um, the resources you have, 
and the railroads were so terribly important then that they never uh, the union kind of took over the railroads and the right. uh, confederacy never did it and that was a huge mistake so i think you could argue probably as well that they could have done better um I think particularly with, if they could have gotten some aid, if they had better diplomacy and respect mm-hmm. from the European allies. But also, yeah, they, the whole, they fumbled around, uh, Davis did at the beginning a little too much. I think Mallory probably saved it. <laughs> mm-hmm. if, if Stephen Mallory hadn't been Secretary of the Navy, I don't know what would have happened. Um, they were certainly blessed with him in, in everybody's well, opinion. Um, so No, you, you show the... the you know, remarkable things he was able to accomplish in terms of, you know, the ironclads, the raiders, the uh, the innovations, and so on. At the very beginning of our talk, you mentioned you were working on another book, and I always like to ask that before we finish. Oh. Uh, uh, what, what What's next on your, uh, on oh, your calendar? Um, well, I I do World War II. My first book was mm-hmm. about the Army Nurse Corps in World War II, and the second uh, book was about the... Uh, it was amphibious warfare in World War II in the Mediterranean. I'm very into the Mediterranean. And um, I had written a two-volume uh, for that book and only had the second one published. Um, and it's been sitting in my computer in varying forms for a long time. So um, I thought, okay, I'm going to do, I'm calling it Against All Odds or Against the Odds. Mm-hmm. Um, about uh, the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean uh, from June of 1940 when Italy and you know entered the war to about beginning of June 1941. I'm just going to do one year because I really like oral history, which is the other thing with Jefferson Davis's mm-hmm. Navy. I like to I like to write and be able to include what people wrote or said or thought about if we have evidence of that. And I have a lot of oral history. Um, that I'd collected over the years, doing interviews with men. I'd, some of this I did 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. They've all passed on, but I never was able to use what some of these Royal Navy um, officers and, and ratings said um, that make it a little more personal and more interesting. So I'm trying to finish up that. Um, but oddly enough, when the pandemic started, I thought, oh, I don't, uh, I can't get to a library. I can't check the footnotes because the libraries are all closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and what am I going to do? So I said, okay, well, I'll write a novel. <laughs> so well. I started writing a novel based on the facts that I already had. But then the last couple of months I said, no, I need to go back. And now that I can probably get to the Hummel Library or the Huntington to check some, you know, if I have to go check some of these books, I think we can get in finally now in California and some of those places. But mm-hmm. um, the Mediterranean, the Royal Navy was interesting. And the thing that that came up that I need to make sure I put in there is that uh, the recently deceased uh, Prince Philip um, was Mm -hmm. on the HMS Valiant at the Battle of Cape Matapan in April of 1941. He was manning the searchlight on the battleship that opens up on the Italian Italian vessel that they start shooting at, and um, he never spoke about it very much. But uh, a few years ago, we started talking about it, and um, they did kind of briefly mention that. Um, you know, he was a young a naval officer in the Mediterranean, um, and of course, Lord Mountbatten uh, was very important there too. Um, and Admiral Cunningham was the the senior officer, commander in chief, Mediterranean in Somerville with Force H. So it's really an interesting. Um, it was very interesting in the beginning of the war for the British. In the Mediterranean, it did not go terribly well until Mat- Mattapan. Uh, Toronto, where they raided 
Uh, they had air, fleet air armed planes mm-hmm. drop torpedoes on the Italian ships in the harbor at Toronto. But it was a Mattapan in April of 41 that was the first big victory and a big morale booster for the British at that point. So I'm kind well, of working on it. So I've kind of gone, left the Civil War yes. and gone back to, <laughs> back to World War II for a while. Unfortunately, we need to leave the Civil War now uh, as we've run out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, The book, Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy, the author is Barbara Tomlin. Barbara, thank you for being here. It was really enjoyable. I hope people look at the book and think about uh, what happened a long time ago from both sides, both the Union and the Confederacy. I'm sure they will do that. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.